How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. gentlemen welcome to box office pulp your one-stop podcast for movies men is moxie and tonight more miniature murder dolls we already did a commentary for the first child's play so we figured eh, we got to go for broke and cover child's play 2 i'm your host cody joining me today for this bop in a movie are my co-host mike say hello mike whenever i watch this it's weird to think i've seen the foster mom naked in the snow with a robot watching Solid commentary. And my other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. I want you guys to know that if I die, and that's a big if. If, not when. I make sure you destroy my original skeleton. Because if they just slap some plastic over this, try to make a new Jamie, it's you're just getting this all over again. There's no way I'm not haunting your ass. Isn't that the goal, though? Like, if I die, I want to make sure my skeleton is not destroyed. That's the only way I'm going to come back and haunt people and have hijinks. No, wipe me off the face of the earth. All right, this was actually a thing that bothered me the other day. Spooky, <laughs> scary skeletons, like ske- skeletons haunting people, that was a big thing in, like, up to the 50s. And then we got away from it. Now it's all zombies. I want to go back to goofy skeletons. I, I some Jason the Argonaut shit. I want I, I mean, skeletons. I do agree. Skeletons were kind of the shit. And... I- you know, spooky, uh, ghost-like specter skeletons are delightful and deadly. I, I just miss... Because what are like you going to stab? St- Nothing. Exactly. It's all bones. I, I miss too. And you would fight them in, uh, in the middle of the battle. You could accidentally punch them a bunch of times and it sounded like you were hitting a xylophone. It was a good time. And if they run out of weapons, they can just throw pieces of them at you. Oh, bone daddy. Oh, oh. also, um, I do feel like Jamie is probably going to die by being covered in molten plastic uh, during one of her many uh, plastic surgery outings. Like, eventually she'll end up on, like, Hollywood botched on, like, E or something, like, (laughs) ten years from now, and just going to be a factory explosion, and it'll be terrible. Why did they use the original plastic? (laughs) We've all seen Mr. Sardonicus. We know how this ends. 
with William Castle coming out and asking us how we want it to end. It would be so just, horrifying to see like Jamie like covered in fake plastic lips until she dies. I like the idea of my future being like some kind of transgender Mason of Urger. Delightful. So folks, before we start this commentary, if you want to drink with me, co-host Cody, you're gonna need these ingredients. Three ounces bourbon. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Bullet or Four, four Roses. Uh, you're going to need an ounce of simple syrup. You're going to need two ounces fresh squeezed lemon juice. Um, about an ounce and a half of egg white. About three-fourths of an ounce of a sour cherry liquor. I'm using Tattersail, but that's like a local thing. So if you don't have it, I'm sorry. It's very tasty. And about four dashes of blood orange bitters. You're going to take all those ingredients, throw them in a mixing glass, hard shake that about 20 to 30 times, add some ice, shake again, get it cold. Then you're going to pour that into a whiskey glass, uh, strain it, garnish with the cherry, and there you go. You have something that I call a blood buddy sour. There's probably a real name for it, but I'm going to pretend I made this myself because I haven't seen any recipes saying to do the exact same steps. I like the name. I would love to see a hard case PI, like order that in a bar. Give me a blood buddy. <laughs> oh no, Sam. I mean it's it's basically a Boston whiskey sour, but there's, you know, the cherry liquor in there and the orange bitters. So, you know, just just a small twist on the original formula. Uh mostly I like that because it's a little bit of a red color, which works. We're watching a horror movie. And a sour seemed like a good direction to go with tonight's drink, personally, because there are chunks of this movie that just churn my stomach. I don't know what it is about melting plastic dolls, but it disgusts me more than seeing gore in most movies. Same. Yeah, so a good sour seemed like the right kind of way to go here. We're not going sweet, we're not going boozy, something sour and foamy. So folks, if you want to make that drink... Have you, have you, have you done it? Good. Yeah, it's tasty, right? I should take a sip and actually prove it is tasty. Hold on. Ah, that's good stuff, folks. This is actually legitimate. Uh, legitimate. Okay, good, good. I, I didn't know if this was an, one of your main... Your famous Cody fake jobs. I've been drinking these for the last two nights. I actually, these are good. God, how evil would that be? You've just been giving people horrible food poisoning all this time. So I just spit it into a barrel like like I'm an actor. To be fair, that's still possible. I mean, the one for Child's Play 1 was terrible. That was like phloem. If you're watching these out of order... Do make the drink for Child's Play 2. Do not make the drink for Child's Play 1. Approach <laughs> like it from the future. I, I fucked that one up. That one's all on me. The individual ingredients are probably fine, but not the way I combine them. <laughs> so. Also, fo- folks at home, yes, you are correct. Cody right now is so drunk, he has reverb. I am in an airplane hangar, and they're going to drop me on Afghanistan. <laughs> that is how bummed i am right now get it i don't know i'm like a comedian in the 1980s i don't know if they're asking me to remake rambo 3 or if they're just trying to get rid of me but i will complete my mission regardless you are somebody who's gonna get so drunk one day you're just shipped out into space like the hulk i'm very lucky i don't live in europe because their train system's too good i would end up in a train that goes to france and they just dump me out there and be like i have to learn how to speak french now awesome oh yeah fucking courtesy would be your downfall. You're somebody who needs to get his ass kicked occasionally. <laughs> I don't think that's true. But enough about me. We've got a movie to watch. Mike, 
Would you care to count us down and bring us into the wonderful, wacky world of Child's Play 2? One. Two. Three. I was really tempted to interrupt your countdown and explain what commentary was, but then I figured you'd get mad at me. So, <sighs> folks, we're doing a commentary where we're going to talk over the movie. <laughs> you can watch with us if you want. Uh, just rewind the episode to where Mike does the countdown, and that's when the movie starts. You should be seeing the Universal logo about now. All of them. Yeah. We're... <laughs> Why did this have three goddamn Universal logos? It was uh, anniversary year. Oh, okay. This is where they introduced, oh, this, is the year they introduced this one. I love whenever I get those watching uh, movies from the early 90s. Like It's like, oh, it was from that summer. Oh, uh, this was the 75th anniversary, a fine year. Vintage. Mm. So this is cool. Um, going into this, um, as, uh, as research, I actually watched a You became uh, a killer edit. doll. Uh, yes. I actually watched an extended fan edit of this film. Um, they incorporates a lot of deleted footage, footage from oh. the various uh, TV sources um, that have put forth uh, some extended cuts and used extended footage um, and some overseas cuts and stuff from like the work print and whatnot, uh, which is about 10 minutes longer than oh, most. that's fantastic. I didn't know this yeah. existed. Yeah, because yeah, um, has pretty much nothing on it. Uh, yeah, the, the, unfortunately, the quality of the scenes, you can always tell when it cuts to them because they... You know, shoot down to shit. Uh, you can find in like an archive. I recommend anybody track it down. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's uh, awesome. see that. I yeah. want to interrupt and just mention this is the grossest goddamn thing. <laughs> it's such it's a cool title card, though. In this movie. Listen, <laughs> uh, the ending. There's something. I, I guess I've always been very sensitive to the smell of plastics. Like there are just some rubbers and plastics that make me want to throw up, and then when they're burnt, you know it's even worse. So just ugh, anytime they're showing the Chucky doll being cleaned up, it's like just throw the fucker out. It's garbage. <laughs> How expensive is that single doll? It's so grotesque looking. I kind of like it. It really is. This is this is grosser to me than like any death in a Friday the Thirteenth movie, and I love those films. But like the sleeping bag death, it doesn't compare to just watching the fucking crust get torn off of this metal skull. Anytime dolls are in any kind of straight uh, s- disrepair or distress, it's always disturbing. <laughs> uh, what oh. you were saying, Rick? Uh, I also I love how it looks like the fucking uh, Phantom of the Opera. There. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> and there it is. Look out, his bruiser. <laughs> <laughs> what a crossover. <laughs> So what was, what was the main difference, Mike, with this yeah. fan edit? Like, did Chucky kill 30 more people? Did they blow Chucky up with dynamite or something? They actually went into space. Also, Graham Revel does the fucking music for this, and that fascinates me. Um, also, Shirley Walker also worked on the orchestra. I think she was the conductor really? uh, of this. Oh. So it's like really prestige uh, music people working on this. Cool. Yeah. Um, the biggest difference, there's a lot of small things throughout. Um, small little changes. There are a lot to help with the pace because this movie's an hour and twenty three minutes. It's very yeah. short. Um, so the extended like cut actually puts it. At, <laughs> the extended cut actually puts it to what I like to call film length, <laughs> um, and it adds a lot of uh, little bits and bobs, a few, few, a uh, few small moments, a few pieces of dialogue. The big thing, though, that I like about the extended cut is. 
I feel like the tone is more even because this is obviously going more into kind of um, embracing comedy. It's going in very opposite direction of the the first film uh, of Tom Holland's direction and going in. This is more akin to like um, Dream Warriors than the yeah. first film. Yeah, and that's the, actually the why, comedy I, is why I like in it. Front of the horror, whereas in the first one, it's more a horror with a bit of comedy. Yeah, and the extended cut, it doesn't necessarily make it more even. Like, it still does have uh, the gonzo kind of tone to it. But for me, the biggest takeaway from the extended cut was the stuff with the Foster family, uh, which I find a little bit stronger in the extended cut. And the big thing is it makes a lot of the events of the film more tragic because it adds an extra dimension to the Foster parents. You, you find out a little bit more information about them, the why they're taking in foster kids in the first place. Um, there's a little bit more dimension to the father who is in the in the normal cut is just kind of very stand. Yeah, he's very standoffish with uh, with Andy and, and, and whatnot. Um, while there's kind of a reason is he's afraid this kid's uh, erratic behavior will ruin their chances of getting a child which they keep being denied like they've been trying to adopt for and they've been rearranging their lives like uh she's uh quit her career to try to make the um adoption center happy um so she can be a stay-at-home mom they've been taking in these foster kids um to try to get in the good graces and they keep getting denied uh, they get uh, a letter of denial uh, during the course of the movie. So he's kind of concerned about all this, and he's he's going through it for her, but he just doesn't want, like, everything to kind of crash down around them. Uh, so they're having, really like, these marital fights, and um, they're much more well-rounded. And I, I really like that, and it adds an air of tragedy to their deaths. Which And this movie already has a pretty thick layer of tragedy if you place in the foster family which i i kind of like that talking, back and forth tone as you're talking about the horrible tragedy of this foster family chucky just shot dark sidious <laughs> lightning bolts out of his eyes <laughs> apparently being complete uh allows him to transform back into the evil killer possessed doll voodoo magic Gonzo, I love. I always had a hard time going with. Like, is okay. So he's been cleaned up and made whole. Apparently, the soul can just repossess that now. Like, at what point is this guy's soul going to hell? Chucky logic. (laughs) True. The logic makes a little more sense when you get to um, with the way some stuff's explained in Child's Play Three. But here, it's just like, oh no, he gets new skin. Um, (laughs) It's it's them peepers. There's also a little bit of extensions. Yeah, there's also more extended stuff actually in this scene, um, a little bit. They explain the card rules, so the game they're playing makes a lot more sense. (laughs) The Foster family is definitely the weakest link in this film from like a screenplay perspective. It always feels like Andy being in a foster home this time is supposed to be what the film is all about but it ends up just kind of feeling like a more of a setting than anything yeah. else to me. So finding out that there's actually stuff on the cutting room floor that 
gave it more of a child's play sense of depth depth is uh that, that, that's sad like it's cool that it exists but i'm sad that that was cut that would have uh that would have made this way more uh substantial i think yeah, yeah. It, it's a bummer it 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 makes it much more suburban horror uh which is what they're going with and it makes a lot of i think the theme of the movie they were going for uh come through a bit more which is uh kind of Andy learning self-reliance. Like it's kind of the opposite of the first film where he was a little bit younger and it was more about like parents not believing a child and that being kind of terrifying depending on the situation. Um, this is Andy kind of breaking away and learning, especially through um, Kyle of, you know, being able to break out on your own. It's about self-reliance to fight back in the situation. Well, plus the greater emphasis on the suburbs would be a great comparison to what they did in the first movie. That movie yeah. is hardcore Chicago, like living in the city of Chicago. And this movie, you see shots of Chicago. I'm sure they film parts of it in Chicago, but it doesn't have the same flavor. And again, if it, it tries to transfer out to the suburbs, that's a perfectly good explanation for why it's like that. And it gives you a good compare and contrast with the first movie then. Also... Just uh, like motif and theme wise, that kind of carries through some stuff from the first movie with the whole idea of like domesticity being broken up by the this gigantic, unstoppable machine of the modern world. That's right, yeah. child rearing. Are you going to have that with like the capitalist stuff in the first movie, like big business owning childhood? And the corruption that's that seeps out from that, and like with that, with that uh foster subplot, like you also have like the big unstoppable machine of bureaucracy preventing these, like literally preventing these people from having children. Like that's uh, that's really interesting. That's so yeah, much to play it, with. Yeah, it's definitely a Mancini Mancini script if you watch the extended version. Well, here it's it's. I like Child's Play too. It's but it's still a fairly straightforward slasher. It, it's cool. It's fun. Uh, has some nice stuff. I after watching the extended cut, it does feel more like a complete story. Yeah, like, into it each one doesn't in this version. Like I, I, I too like Child's Play too a lot. I especially like the. I like the novelty of okay. Here's just a child. Here's Child's Play. If it was a regular horror film, kind of in the same way that uh, Hellraiser 3 just gives you 80s horror villain pinhead for once. I will say, though, one, one of the... I'm, I'm more of a Child's Play 2 naysayer. I think it's a better sequel than a lot of the other middle elements of Child's Play, but what we saw just a second ago is one of my gripes with the film. There's one of the cheapest jump scares you can do where someone's not paying attention. They have to hit the brakes quick because there's just cars in the intersection... I hate those jump scares so much. They feel cheap. They feel unearned. They try and do something extra with it, you know, with the good guy truck logo being reflected into the car, but they could have just had that. Like, they didn't have to set up a fake jump scare just to get that imagery across. And if memory serves, this movie has a couple of spots like that where it's the most derivative kind of jump scares, and it drives me bonkers. Anytime it, the jump scare is just the cat, you if it's the, the cat. Audience. Like jump scares are a perfectly reasonable tool in any toolbox, but yeah, fake out jump scares are not satisfying at all. 
God, my I think biggest... you, can, you can watch that with audiences. Like if there's a jump scare and it's paid off with actual horror, everybody's having a good time. It's you know when the cat jumps out, that's like oh come on guys. And I'm one of the first people to tell you I think jump scares are undervalued in horror films. A lot of people poo poo yeah. them, but I love jump scares. I love place. a well done jump scare with tension behind it. Pennywise coming out of that fucking screen in the Muschietti's It is one of the scariest moments in this film history. Like any, and for any of these every one of those, in the Conjuring uh, 2 or 1. Yeah. And for better, every one of those, there's uh, the kid in the box for no reason and Sinister. Yeah. Or any, like you mentioned before, the cat is really the worst one. If someone does that now in a movie, I, uh, I instantly throw away like half the goodwill I had built up. The, yeah. the, when it's specifically a cat, it's weird because that was a trope from like 2000. Uh, like before it's, that, it's even I, at this point, what was I watching? I, I think it was Slumber Party Massacre. I was watching the other day, the original one, and I want to say they had the exact same thing. Like the cats, just for some reason, jumping out and hissing at people with really bad audio dumbed over it, so you almost think they did it on purpose as a joke. But I will say, like, if you're watching Slumber Party Massacre, that was on purpose as a joke. Oh yeah, that's just a parody film. <laughs> so I could actually see uh, the director of that putting that in as a fuck you to slasher movies. You know, guys, we, we missed one of the most important assets of any commentary. Me rambling on about all the cast and crew that's involved with the picture. You haven't given us our child's play two facts, you piece we, of shit. Yeah, Mike got into it with some cool stuff. I didn't want to interrupt that flow more than I already did. Anyways, folks, has that ever stopped you? Very rarely. <laughs> very, very rarely. <laughs> folks, let's get into it. Here are your Child's Play 2 fun facts. This picture, directed by John Lafia. Now, Lafia co-wrote the screenplay for the original Child's Play, so it's no big surprise that he moved up to take over directing the sequel. Uh, he was actually an uncredited writer for the It miniseries, which I thought was pretty neat. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool, right? I, I can uh, see that too, yeah. And besides writing, he actually dabbled in mixing computer graphics and life-action footage. Uh, so there's a, an old video game called Corpse Killer that eventually was recycled into a 2003 movie called Game Over, where they had live-action footage and really early CGI mixed together. He was kind of a pioneer in that sense. Uh, I don't know if anyone in the world <laughs> knows about Corpse Killer these days, and it seems nigh unplayable now. But it certainly was uh, a step in the direction that every movie does these days. So it's, it's kind of cool to look back and see the history there. The screenplay for this movie was from our old friend, Don Mancini. Hey. Uh, you know that name? He's been a vital part of pretty much every asset of Child's Play through its entire series. For cast, we've got Alex Vincent returning as Andy Barkley. Uh, Jenny Eggnutter. Uh... <laughs> A gutter. A gutter? A gutter. Egg nutter. Egg nutter. A gutter. The hell? A G U T T E R. Black Widow. Working on we it. have Black Widow. <laughs> Joanne Simpson. You probably recognize her from An American Werewolf in London. Or. And also about to leave this movie, we have this fucking dude. This man. <laughs> also, I'm this one blew my mind. I didn't realize this at all, but uh, she also had a role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. She was Councilwoman Holly. Mm -hmm. That's how she became yes. Black Widow. Uh, see, I never connected those dots before. I'm drunk. Oh, 
I have people age and they just disappear from my mind. They're new people. It did fucking blow my mind when I realized she was the nurse from American Werewolf after watching Winter Soldier. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, oh, God, I've seen her make love. When I was mm-hmm. writing this, yeah, that popped in my head. I was like, oh, this is weird. Oh, oh so also... there's a whole deleted bit here as well. Um, he actually makes a phone call before he calls Gabriella. Um, or he actually calls his wife and speaks to her in a completely like different tone, like almost putting on mm-hmm. a faux voice and goes like, kiss, kiss. I'll be working <laughs> late tonight. Like puts on this like this faux voice and then calls Gabriella and does this. Setting up, I mean, stopping at the store for vodka. It's not quite necessary, considering we already hate this guy. <laughs> it's not necessary, but it's this. just, uh, I don't know, it, it kind of helps the pace and adds this uh, kind of parody aspect to it. There's also a bit That's here character. after um, Chucky's eyes moving to the briefcase that's about to pop up in a minute. Um, he, he Chucky then... Um, you see him kind of from behind opening up the briefcase and uh, sorting through everything inside of it. Like he throws a, he looks at a picture of Charles Lee Ray and throws it aside. Uh, and then he gets out the uh, information on um, Andy uh, to, then that's how he's able to call in this scene. Ah. So it's a little more complicit that the company knew what was going on. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an interesting like twist. That. Yeah, actually. I, 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 I like little character twists. Like that too. Like, let's just have this dude be weird in the scene. There's <laughs> little touches like that that makes the really great slasher movies stand out. I wish they could have kept that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Also, I would give anything for Chucky to pick up that phone and tell her it's a free country, lady. <laughs> and well, I'm she sorry, pulls Cody. Off her face and the darkness of the world is inside. <laughs> uh, my my my. Child's Play fun facts are off by three names. We're getting to Grace Zabriskie in just a moment. Uh, in this film, we have Garrett Graham, Phil Simpson. Uh, Garrett's one of those guys, like, you recognize him from a thousand things, but you would never know his name. My, my favorite, though. He was Bud the Chud. And Chud, too. <laughs> yeah! Bud the Chud. Wow, he was the headliner. <laughs> he was. That was his movie. Bud the Chud. Official bop celebrity. Yep. Uh, we have Christine Elise as Kyle, and, uh, well, we've already missed her. She was on screen a moment ago. Grace Zabriskie as uh, Grace Poole. And, God, I can only see her as Sarah Palmer. I know she's been in a hundred other things as well, like she's had pre-city work, but she's just I Sarah on- Palmer. I can only see her as Susan's mother on Seinfeld. Same. <laughs> this is fun to see how everyone recognizes her. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about her later, because... Fascinating actress. Uh, and then, of course, Brad Dourif comes back as the voice of Chucky. And this time, I think Mikey mentioned this in the last commentary, this is where the Chucky personality really comes out to play, pun intended. It feels like he got more time to really flesh out what he wanted to do with Chucky. And the, this is the version of the killer doll we've all come to love. Oh, yeah. This is pop culture Chucky introduced here. It's, it's, it's like uh, Freddy yeah. uh, come... Once again, Dream Warriors. Like by the time you get there, that's pop culture, Freddy. This is pop yeah. culture, Chucky. Because he's not kept yeah. in the shadows. Like we're in the. This is the end of the first act, and Chucky's just holding somebody up. Right. It's this Chucky even... who knows that this is his goddamn movie from Frame Rock <laughs> One. I mean, we're not even twenty minutes in. And he's already got a gun on a guy. I never get tired of Chucky using child toys for murder. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the jump rope. <laughs> 
Oh, God, that is that. such an expressive animatronic too. They really yeah. stepped up the game in this it's one. Wonderful work. He's very just uh, real in this movie. Yeah, that's why I can never say that Child's Play Two is like another crappy horror sequel. Like, they're technically this is a very good movie. As far as like nuts and bolts go, you got the better Chucky. You got, in many ways, a more personable, more memorable Chucky. Yeah. Like it's it's a little flat, but it's got such great elements to it. You really can't ignore it. This is why I think, even though I I really do love Child's Play too, it's to me it's a great slasher. Um, this is where it kind of doesn't live up to the first film, even though it's not really one hundred percent going for that tone. The it's not just the loss of Tom Holland as director. And I don't, I'm, I don't mean to insult John Lafayette in any way, but there is a lack of finesse that is missing. Yeah. Uh, now Lafayette has written some stuff and directed some stuff, but not exactly you would say a grand tier director. You know, I, I once again don't want to insult him, but you look at a lot of stuff. Pretty much, other than like two episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, pretty much the biggest thing um outside of his um his first film which he which he wrote and directed the blue iguana is this like other than that it's mostly like tv movie stuff or just weird kind of junky stuff um there's a lack of finesse with the tone and you see him struggle with certain things that tom holland was very adept at and he can't quite juggle things. I think Lafayette actually does a l- very good at the personable scenes. Like stuff yeah, like definitely. this. It's very um, sincere, which you don't see very often, particularly in like 1990 from a slasher movie. You didn't see a lot of like sincere scenes between characters. And there's actually a care for all the individuals. But Mike, you spoiled one of my Chucky fun facts. Oh, I'm sorry. The movie premiere is at the bottom. Nah, I'll wait. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it's you can understand why Lafia had a pretty decent career being a, being a television director, because he does really sparkle with all the domestic stuff. You can tell that's him and his element. Yeah. Also, I just want to say that Lafia also gave us man's best friend. <laughs> which I was obsessed with when I was a small child for some reason. But I mean, it, it's Lance Henrik. It's a Cujo remake with Lance Henriksen, essentially. <laughs> How do you not love that? <laughs> All right. I got I to power through this list of fun facts or they're going to kill me. Music by Graham Revell. Um, so this is this weird. I didn't actually recognize who that was until I had to look him up and then realize, oh, he scored... All sorts of things that are amazing. Uh, let's go down a list here. The Crow, uh, the Power Rangers movie, From Dust Till Dawn, The Craft, Bride of Chucky, Titan A.E., Daredevil, Jason, uh, Freddy vs. Jason, Sin City, and all of the Riddick movies. Like, you've heard his work before, even if you don't recognize the name. What else? We have our cinematography by Stefan Zapsky. Uh, so he's... Very famous for his collaborations with Tim Burton. He did Ed Wood, Batman Returns, and Edward Scissorhands. Considering the shot we just saw, yeah, that was mm-hmm. makes sense, that right? makes a lot of sense. This is a also, beautiful looking Chuck, movie. 
Also, I love how Chucky seems to know that doll. It's always amused the shit out of me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, eat shit, Tommy. <laughs> it says, hi, I'm Tommy. He tells him. He gives him the, the lowdown on who he is. There's a it very seems Tim personal, Burton. though. Yeah. I, I like how Chucky's kind of acclimated to being a doll, so it's like he's living in this world now. <laughs> so other dolls piss him off because they're not <laughs> like Tommy. him. The twist of Tommy being a Trojan ch- uh, good guy doll who needs to be kept around in like a misguided attempt to help Andy is such a genius cheat for just having the doll around all the time. Yeah. I mean, it seems like bad parenting to me, but I understand the uh, the explanation. I-, I think that's prime 90s parenting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> for what we all experienced. Also, this chick is Julia Stilesing hard, isn't she? Super. <laughs> All right, who's ready for me to mispronounce a name? Oh boy. Oh boy. So this film was edited by Edward Warshilka. I think I said that right. He was the editor in the first Child's Play, so that's actually a fun little bit of continuity in the uh, technical staff for this film. It's nice to see when those things carry over. So this was, as Mike already revealed, released November 9th, nineteen ninety. About. On the it was actually the two year anniversary of the first film. Uh, the budget was thirteen million dollars, which was actually an increase of four million bucks. Uh, the worldwide box office was thirty five point eight million dollars, which was a bit of a disappointment because the first film made forty four point two million dollars, with you know four million dollars less in budget. But you know, really, in nineteen ninety, the idea of sequels were eh, this will make less money than the original anyways. It was kind of surprising yeah. it's got an increase in budget. But yeah. if you look at most of the Friday the 13th, they all made less money than the one before it. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street was kind of a rare case where they started making more money for the first couple of films and then dripped off after that. But most of the time, if you're doing a sequel, it was just a really fast cash grab where it's like, hey, there's still some blood to be squeezed out of the stone. Get it all while we can. Well, it's weird how... That had opposite effects with Child's Play 2 and Child's Play 3. Mm-hmm. Like, as sometimes undercooked as Child's Play 2 can feel, it's still, like, a legit Child's Play 2. Like, it's surprising... Uh, it's surprising to think of this as just a horror sequel. Meanwhile, Child's Play 3, you can really see the seams on that. And you can really see, okay, this... This was, can we just get one more of these out before the Chucky fever is over? Well, two things on that. Child's Play 3 actually came out nine months after this movie. God, it's like Son of King Kong. It really is. That's astounding to me. To have a sequel out in the same calendar year is, I mean, if you suggested that now, people would be like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Like We still had to wait a year for Endgame. That's where we shot the same time. Yeah, well, the the last time I can think of it happening was the the Matrix sequels, and people were not into that spacing. Six months was just not enough time between Revolution, uh, Reloaded, and Revolutions. So it's a yeah, once again those think. were filmed at least at the same time, right? Yeah, they had to do a whole movie after this, and they did it in nine months. That's that's, that's why, insane. if anything, I I know Child's Play three is Child's Play three, and there's parts of Child's Play three I I love, but mostly the third act, um, but. I'm honestly be impressed with Child's Play 3. Like, the fact <laughs> they were sure able to throw something together at all entertaining 
just out of their ass is and it's pretty an animatronic movie. Yeah. I will get into it with that commentary, but yeah, it's like it's like what we said about Blade Trinity. Uh, we covered that last year. Like, just be amazed that everybody showed up and there was film in the can. <laughs> yeah. And still tells, like, a, a trilogy story that kind of makes sense. The only unfortunate thing is losing Kyle, but... Yeah, those movies do take place in the far-flung future, like Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> I like how that's a weird mini trope of slasher franchises. At some point, they'll accidentally slide into the the near future just because of t- the timeline mistakes and shit. Uh, well, by the end, by the last like uh, nightmare movie, it was like the fucking vaguely post-apocalyptic because of Freddy. <laughs> we don't talk about that for some reason. Oh yeah, God. Freddy's not here, man. But if I can if I can backtrack a little bit about the concept of sequels in the '90s, I mean, one, the '90s were kind of regarded as a low spot for horror in general. We were basically getting the last of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. We're getting the last of the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Yeah, this was like Jason Goes to Hell era, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, it's yeah. around that time where they had to start dipping into kind of gimmick territory to keep these film series going. So the sequel really was cash bait, and. If you announce you're doing a sequel to a horror film, everyone kind of roll their eyes and say, of course. It wasn't expected to be good, even if the first one was. It was just, oh, yeah, of course they're doing another one. And I'll take my girlfriend that, to see that. Yeah, and the horror of that time was generally disregarded anyways. It's, it's not regarded as the best of the best. But it, it kind of threw me off because I was listening to a commentary for Poltergeist 2 the other day. Now, that came out in 1986, so four years before this even. And the writer was talking about how it was kind of disrespected to even propose a sequel at that point which i don't know if i'd really buy because think like even jaws had sequels in the 80s like the french connection had a sequel fuck like most big movies really had sequels even the thin man had like seven goddamn sequels the sting part two exists exactly yeah so like big movies got sequels but they didn't have a larger budget they weren't expected to be good or you know to to have a lot of effort put into them, I think, to the same degree as the first one. I'm sorry to all the people that really love Jaws 2. Uh, I don't think it was until, like, the 90s where we started getting things like, you know, T2, Judgment Day, where people started to think of sequels as really being a chance where, hey, we can make more money. We can use this as a springboard to launch an entire franchise. Yeah, I feel like Terminator 2 was really was the first mega sequel in that yeah. regard. Maybe, well, I don't know what the box office on Aliens. Aliens. Yeah. Aliens was probably the, the forerunner for that idea. And again, Cameron. So maybe it's just when you have Cameron involved, the budget's <laughs> just balloon and you get to yeah. do something big. That as does help. Cool. Yeah, I guess Empire and Aliens were kind of building to that. T2 yeah. was like Cameron saying, no, this is just how movies are made now. Oh, uh, <laughs> as that's as he's thing. wanting to do. Like, could you imagine if Captain America 2, when they did the Winter Soldier, they're like, hey, what if we gave you 20% less budget? Uh, and you just push this thing out like a year later, like that's. You mean just, Iron Man too? Yeah, like it's just it's Ouch. not a thing that really happens anymore. Studios have realized like, oh, if we put the money in, we could actually make this the follow up bigger and better, and we're going to build a fan base that's going to be loyal to this property. And it's all about franchise building now. Whereas in the past, you built the franchise, but it was kind of like a, oh, hey, they're still giving us money for this. That's hilarious. So, what do you guys 
think about that? Like, do you, do you think that uh, audiences are far more receptive to that stuff because they've been acclimated to it over time? Or do you think that audiences were always hungry for bigger and better sequels, but just backwards studio thinking always denied them of that? Oh, yeah. Same thing. I mean, think about just, yeah, like, I mean, book series always existed, comic books, you know, sequels always existed in various forms, and there were successful sequels. People wanted, like, continuing stories. They made a crazy number of Thin Man movies. People wanted that character back. Bond, same thing. People Uh, love these characters, and they're like, you just keep making them. And the studios weren't smart enough to go, if we put a lot of money in, we could probably keep building the fan base. Yeah, I I do feel like audiences did need to be swayed back onto the side of sequels after the sequel concept was ran into the ground. But but yeah, I, I do think that's this this was probably something always in the air that just nobody ever grabbed up. Well, I wonder okay. if part of it is just when it was easy to get movies on home video if it changed. Let's say Yeah, it was a big deal, know, I think. For building an audience, if you're doing a sequel, it's probably really hard in the forties because the only way you could see the original was if they were playing it at the theater. So if you're if you're doing a sequel with the characters everyone already knows, building off a scenario everyone already knows, you have to make the assumption everyone already knows it, which isn't true. If you're trying to build an audience, you're trying to reach people who didn't see the first one right away, and you have to bring them into the fold. So in the 90s, that changes. Everyone can just get a VHS of the movie. They can rent it. It's no problem. I wonder if that's some of the logic behind the whole time-honored trope of the horror franchise that's just a remake of the original again and again and again. Like, I imagine during the early days of Friday the 13th, like, their thought was just, people are going to see this once, and then maybe at, like, a third-run drive-in a a couple of months later, and that movie's just gone forever. So, yeah, let's just give them the Friday the 13th experience once a year. I I definitely think that's it. But part of it comes down to... They're trying to crank these things out within nine months, let's say, of the original. You don't have time to innovate on the formula. It's like, what did work? What worked last time? Do it again, please. And it's part of, we know that worked. We'll do it again. Or we have the script format for that. Let's do it again. I think that was just trying to do things in a rush. They simply couldn't innovate and, and change too much. They knew it worked, so they're happy to stick with it. So that's so amazing when we get outliers like uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, which are just movies with ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it wears me out now, because if... Just imagine... Get lost, microchip! Sorry. Just imagine, like, these movies come out. They're they're in a current era. They're going to have a sequel tease built into them, or they're going to have a post-credit scene. (laughs) Whereas, like, no one in the 80s would ever imagine that. They would have, like, maybe the typical, oh, is it really the end tease? Because that's just what horror movies did. It wasn't in host of a sequel. It was just, oh, horror movies need to end with that sense of unease. That's oh, like this scare. movie. Like this movie originally had, but we'll get there. Ooh. Ooh a sequel tease within a movie. <laughs> also, going back to the, the franchise thing for just a second, anytime anyone says that uh, movies have too many sequels, these days, like I just want you to go and look up how many fucking Andy Hardy movies right. were made in the forties, or how many young Doctor Kildare's. <laughs> like, look at Mickey Rooney's IMDb page. 
yeah. back when he was young. That's like that. That dude was fucking franchise material. <laughs> People oh, don't yeah. appreciate the history of Hollywood, I think, sometimes. Mickey Rooney yeah. was the fucking rock in he his was... day. Think about that. <laughs> so uh, I, I really get a crack out of people saying, oh, there's too many reboots of this property. You know the Maltese Falcon? That was the third adapted version of the story. The third or one. if you count radio play, sometimes with the same cast as the movies. Yeah. And the Maltese yeah. Falcon's only there because something from the last one didn't go past the Hayes Code. So no, it's not like their heart was into it. Like they were just refilming a movie for basically legal purposes. Right? That's the amazing thing. Like, they did that movie essentially three times in a 15-, 20-year period. Less and now than everyone that. Just looks the, yeah, everyone looks at the Maltese Falcon like, what a classic of cinema. And it is. But it's just amazing to think, like, it was the byproduct of basically saying, fuck it, just keep remaking it. Just keep pushing it out. People like the story. We'll make money off of it. Just treat it like it's a stage show. That's one of the things you can do whenever the art you're making is so fucking ethereal that... Yeah, that the next time you see the Maltese Falcon and it's a remake, that's just the next time you see that story. Like, right. There is no home video to go to. Yeah. Also, everything race. was based on a book. Yeah. <laughs> Nearly everything was based on a goddamn book. A book or a play. And a lot of times the plays are based on books. But just, God, just, just imagine now, like, if you propose, like, oh, we're doing a remake of the Maltese Falcon, people would be like, oh, fuck yourself. Why are Sacrilege. you making a Yeah. Same with uh, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, you're remaking The Wizard of Oz, you monster. It's like, what's it matter? We've already had a couple of, you know, non-official sequels to the original. God, There's a 15-series book, you know, book series. Why not? Go crazy. Yeah. I've gotten very I... lax on this as I've gotten older. As a kid, I would have been on the side going, no, it's wrong. And as an adult, I was like, ah, fuck it. Just make it good. Yeah, purism starts to go away after you've paid a couple of bills. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice way to think about that. Uh, going back to going back to this movie for a second, just a second though, <laughs> just a second, because uh, <laughs> it's us and I, I know better. Falcon. It's us I know and better. slasher movies. We can talk for hours. Yeah, uh, we, we passed earlier, but my, one of my favorite fucking bits is Andy just punching Chucky square in the goddamn face. <laughs> I uh, love how done Andy is in this movie. That's Fuck that's you, what's so great. And I, I and that's what I love um, about this movie, and I think people who dig this movie talk about it a lot, which is how proactive Andy is, <laughs> because he's dealt with Chucky. Like there is um, a personable nature in the relationship between Chucky and Andy. You don't get out of a lot of slashers and um, and uh, the uh, continuing protagonist, which is uh, rare, of course. You even get uh, continuing protagonist. Um, but Andy really at those desks. I, this I'm is this death is so brutal. Like, the walking still doesn't quite work, but they're trying. This this actress just really committed to how physically she needed to do this role. It's, it's, oh, she's oh, yeah. like a wrestler. It, yeah, it's like this. You, if I didn't know any better, I would just say like a stunt actress did ninety percent of this job. But uh, apparently, no. It's just this this actress was totally into it. And that's uh, something I fucking name. <laughs> and this is and this entire thing is brutal. Like he's just beating her. Like, to death, really horrible. Yeah, and that's something that uh, fascinates me about the movie, which is it puts you off guard. The deaths are really brutal and cruel. The and first death was doing that, that guy getting smothered with a plastic bag. Like we all thought he was a dick, but Jesus, that's a horrifying way to go. You get to see his face smushed against the plastic. Yeah, the, it, the movie has a more ganjo type of 
tone to it that uh, you see in a lot of the other slashers at the time, but it's very self-aware about its violence in the uh, Wes Craven kind of way, almost. And it's going to, for that, throwing you off tonal-wise, where it's juggling back and forth between, you know, this home stuff and then uh, the Chucky kind of slapsticky kind of personality and then just cruelty. Like, how the Foster family dies, especially in the extended cut where you get more of their personal story, is completely tragic. Like, Chucky is this figure ruining everybody. Like, he's yeah. ruined Andy's life. He's completely just jumping in like a tornado and destroying this family with violence. It's really interesting. And then going back to Andy, like, being really proactive and uh, them having this relationship back and forth. But Andy's still looking for, as a child, like, I'm the child, you're the adult, you need to be doing something. And then learning by the end to just kind of do it himself. <laughs> like, there's a kind of that's... a really interesting uh, kind of growing up story there that's almost not anti-family, because the movie is still very pro-family, particularly the extended version I found. But there's a, a back-off of over-reliance of a familiar unit, unit that I think is really interesting and very unique to the movie. And does fit with the themes that were originally present uh, in the longer cut of Child's Play with uh, Andy uh, having more of a journey towards self-reliance uh, in that screenplay. So Andy altogether has a pretty good character arc as far as uh, slasher protagonists go. Yeah, even in the third movie, like him going into the protector role for another child like you know that movie wasn't allowed to bake obviously but the idea is really <laughs> fucking interesting and it makes for I a would, great trilogy arc i would counter slightly though because i i think it's actually pretty common in horror movies for teenagers not necessarily small children but teenagers to have arcs where the adults are revealed to be adults like they just are yeah. not helpful they don't understand the situation and it's part of that thing for teenagers. When a movie is being presented to a teen, it's one of those things where the learning lesson is, hey, adults don't have all the answers. That's the idealism that you have as a child. And that naivety gets stripped away from you. And when you grow up, you realize like, oh, fuck, you got to do it yourself. Because honestly, no one else out there is any help and they just don't care. I think that's that's a staple of horror. Oh, it's a huge staple. But I'm, I'm talking like that's, um, you know, the teenager, that's the... Yeah, um, breakdown older, of uh, yeah of an older group of a baby boomer kind of white picket fence aesthetic, and the reveal of the reality of the of the situation for teenagers going into adulthood. Speaking um, of which, boy, is the Monster Squad real good? <laughs> <laughs> Wolfman's got nards. It's true, but I I think what's different about this is besides the age and Andy, of course, being way younger, which is very unique. Mm -hmm. Uh, which oh, plays, sure. which plays on it in a very different way than it does with a teenager. Like it's not going for that breakdown kind of baby boomer aesthetic. Uh, it's like more of a uh, societal deconstruction that you find in the other slashers, um, particularly like yeah, Wes Craven stuff. Like here, it's it, like it's almost hard to describe what they're necessarily going for, but. Uh, of a breakthrough of of childlike innocence and how 
the world itself kind of views children. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's unique and great, I think, about killer doll movies in general. Like, people kind of, especially in the horror community, kind of poo-poo killer dolls. Like, ah, uh, it's, it's so silly, it's meant to be funny, whatever. But having a killer doll means your protagonist would probably be a child. Because why else would there be killer doll around? Normally it's, you know, a kid and his toy. And I, I think that's really fun because in Hollywood shorthand, children are supposed to be the pure, innocent creatures. And if you bring harm upon them, that totally throws the movie off whack. It's not done. It's not right. You wouldn't expect it to happen. It's only more recently in films do we even get films where ch children can be murdered or children can be displayed as more than just little cherub angels. Yeah. And that's kind of the fun thing about a, a film like Child's Play. Like Andy gets to develop a little more as a character. He gets to display some different sides. He shows trauma and he's going against a killer doll, which is essentially a perversion of his innocence. It's a fun toy to encourage imagination in, in a child that's been twisted into a vessel of evil. It's a lot of fun contrast and I think the reason most people hate killer doll movies is it depends on the child actor, which is really hard to find a good child actor. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. this is lightning in a bottle. Just yeah, think this kid's performance is honestly incredible. I, I give him all the credit in the world. Uh, but think of something, even like It, where the kids are slightly older, like teenage age. Boy, it's hard to find great actors in that range, too, a lot of the time. Like, either they come yeah. off as way, way too into the act or unprofessional and stilted. Yeah, there's and, a reason teenagers were played by 25-year-olds <laughs> for a very long time. Right. So, honestly, just imagine it, the new movie version, if even one of those kids wasn't delivering just a, a wonderful performance. That movie would fall apart. The scares wouldn't work. The jumps wouldn't work. The tension wouldn't be there. You wouldn't have compassion for any of these people. But they somehow managed to find just a wonderful set of actors and uh, just pulled together an amazing set of performances. And I think the same holds true with this movie. If Andy was annoying, the whole thing falls apart and people would just tune out. Oh, even, if he was even, Jake Lloyd, th there would be no sequel. Right. Even Alfred even would have died. Yeah, even in good movies like The Babadook, the number one criticism you will see of that movie is the child in that movie is too annoying. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's by design. But... People see an annoying child and they tune out and they just they turn on the film. So you have to work very hard to thread the needle with children actors. Like, boy, it's it's just a miracle that they, they picked a kid who could just work so well and at such a young age, it really is astounding. And evolve in the way they needed Andy to evolve. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about uh Hollywood's obsession with like the cherubic innocence of children. Uh, I could think, uh, Mike, whenever you were talking about uh, the uh, themes of childhood, how it's kind of is a different from where a director like uh, Wes Craven is coming from. All I could think was comparing uh, the first two Child's Play films with Nightmare on Elm Street, where big difference is and the thing I think makes Child's Play such an outlier is 
in child's play, innocence is tested, but remains mostly intact. Like, Andy goes through so much shit in this in these movies, but at the end of the day is still, like, a nice child who is still a child. Mm-hmm. Like, compare that to A Nightmare on Elm Street where nothing is left standing. It, like, yeah. The, like that movie salts the earth. No, America is not left standing <laughs> at the end of that. But the second they hop into the the Freddy mobile and drive off into hell, and it, it's that's something that makes these again at least the first two films kind of optimistic in a weird kind of way. Yeah, yeah. there's a resilience to the to the power of childhood that. I think these movies, um, like maybe not even entirely on purpose, but they're uh, they're pushing it in a in an interesting direction. Yeah. Oh, and uh, going back to uh, the increase in cruelty in this film, which, like, like you said, really does give us the Chucky kills for the first time. What what is the most what, the most interesting thing about this film for me? The thing that which I think maybe wasn't the best decision going forward, but was a interesting decision for this was having the cruelty and the emotional harshness of the film play off against a environment that's designed and shot to be far more toyetic. Yeah. In the world of the original movie, like you see that very much in the factory and the beginning and ending, which is just like something from toys. Yeah, yeah, and I, I can't wait to discuss the the design of the factory. I'm kind of obsessed with it. Yeah. Uh, and as a as a fan, I think that's a mis- like a misstep for the series. Like Chucky works best when he's in the grimiest, dingiest environments possible and he's, he's, he's playing outlier. against them. Yeah. He's the cartoony bit and everything else yeah. is very grounded. But it, the people in be. the gritty environment are normal and it's the adorable doll that is the evil and human monster. Yeah. But for this film it makes it really interesting. Like this is where it, I feel it works best uh, that approach. Well, especially with the uh the 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 foster mom like that's the kind of character you assume she is going to be the Marge Simpson. She's going to be totally understanding a suffering angel. And then you get this twist in here. Her husband dies and she immediately turns on Andy. She's like, get away from me. I don't become AI for Yeah. Like she's like, no, I'm done with this kid. My, my husband is dead and this is just a child. It's not my child. I don't have unconditional love for him. This is a mistake, which is really kind of a, that's that's it's not how that ever works in one of these movies. Yeah, uh, and then you the kind of think, horror moment in the entire film. That's the one that's always stuck with me in my memory. Yeah, and you almost think it's going to be okay. That's the point where her arc resets. She hit her lowest point, and now she has to redeem herself to Andy, and she's going to come through in the end. And no, that that's essentially the end of her arc. She failed. She took the wrong page in the Choose Your Own Adventure story, and <laughs> she uh, dies off screen. She dies off screen. Which and is also, I, I hate it when horror movies do that too. Just fucking show us the kill. I think it, I, th- I, I would usually agree, but I really like 
the fact she dies off screen. Like, there's something so shocking about it. Yeah, that reveal is pretty heavy. Well, they have that slow reveal, although it's one of those things for me. It's like you already know she's dead by the time she turns. So it, oh, it yeah. doesn't have the but tension. It's just the fact all of this added to nothing you'd expect in a movie. Like, yeah. Chucky literally just destroyed board. an entire family. It really did. And, like, people you would normally assume are well-meaning people. They're foster parents. Like, yeah. in movie karma, they're they're gods compared to normal folk. So you expect the slimy attorney at the start of the movie to die. You you don't put stock in these innocents and good people being torn down for no good reason. And, and not- once again, add in the stuff from the extended cut of the mom and, and the dad uh, kind of having this added arc that was deleted in the released cut. Um, mm-hmm. This back and forth, they, they have arguments or they have discussions um, about, about Andy and she's like really just defending him and knowing she's putting a lot on the line for Andy. And it makes that turnaround of get away from me even more brutal than it is in the release cut. Like it adds yeah. so much added depth because you've seen so much and her death adds so much. The death of the father adds so much in that extended cut. The death of the father is something I would like to pause on because what a weird choice. In this movie, they've essentially established he's the alpha dick. Like Phil, Phil has moments that soften him quite a bit throughout the movie. So you can you can view him as slightly sympathetic, but he's in turns cold and clueless, and he just he, he seems like the jerk of the film, which almost every slasher film establishes one jerk character who you're supposed to cheer when they die. They have it coming. Everyone yeah. else is an unfortunate bystander. And his death comes very early in the film, relatively speaking. I mean, he, he died at like, what, the 45-minute mark out of an hour 20 movie? But... Really, you assume those characters are going to be like the second to last to die. They're they're kind of the emotional climax of the film. Like, oh, thank God that dude's dead. Cool. Now we can worry about the killer. And it's it's just another surprise there that they kill him off. And his death too is very gruesome. He falls yeah. down and breaks his neck. That's a death anyone could have. You could have that tomorrow leaving your house. You could trip on your porch and die that way. That's a very <laughs> realistic death. Yeah, that's you could die upsetting. before you wake up tomorrow. Well, yeah, anyone could. I mean, if you got sleep apnea, you might be dead tonight. Sure. That's how you you finish this commentary. (laughs) Boy, I don't know how I'd feel if we put someone to sleep and they died of sleep apnea. Hear that, that audience? Scream! (laughs) The tingler is on you! Uh, I'm not going to spend time talking about the tingler other than this one sentence that I'm starting now. Colin. (laughs) I recently bought The Tingler and watched it for the first time, and boy, that's a silly movie. Oh, you've, you've never seen The Tingler before? No, I just, I knew about the gimmick, but I had never seen the film proper. Did so, it come uh, with a buzzer? No, unfortunately. Uh, I got the Scream edition of it, so I got to hear, like, the commentary tracks talking about that kind of stuff, and, uh, oh, boy, it's a silly movie. It's fun, but boy, it's silly. Oh, it's silly as hell, but it's so much fun. I love that the movie as a kid. <laughs> as a, I have a soft spot for it. Castle Classic. Also, God, Chucky bites a lot in this movie. <laughs> he really he does. does. Well, we saw those immaculate dentures he had at the start of the film. <laughs> they give him <laughs> fucking Terminator teeth. Like, that, that'll that prove he's real. He has teeth. We stole them from your grandfather and put them in a doll. <laughs> oh, that's why it's evil. 
<laughs> Not the voodoo, it's <laughs> Grandpa's missing teeth. Um, re- returning to uh, the the unexpected nature of the mo- the murders in this movie, uh, the early Child's Play movies understand something that uh, Wes Craven was the master of, something we've talked about a lot in relation to his career. All right, we've this- mentioned Wes Craven several times tonight, and the more you guys are saying it, the more I believe, actually, this would have fit perfectly into his filmography. This does feel oh, totally. like a Craven film. Oh, yeah. I could easily see that if, if fate had been just a little bit different. Yeah. But, what the uh, fuck was he doing in 1990? He was probably like presenting some sort of shitty Dracula movie. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's here's something which uh, Craven always understood, which is a slasher from like a narrative screenwriting perspective. All, like, a slasher should always serve as an agent of the uncaring cruelty of the universe. Like, Freddy, uh, in the first Nightmare on Elm Street, is very much this. Uh, Horace Pinker in Shocker is super this. Like Even Billy, I would argue, like, Billy is mad at the world, so he's like, hey, if you were shitty to me, I'm going to make your life as miserable as I feel. Yeah, like, a slasher should be like Thanos. The second they walk into the room, nothing that's going on in these people's lives matters anymore. I, I don't care if you're pregnant and you don't know if you're going to keep the baby. I don't care if you and your wife are having problems. I don't care if you're moving next next semester and you haven't told your family. You have to die now because as soon as I walk in, the movie's all about me. Like That's what makes uh, the really good slashers so terrifying. They do not give a shit that you're in a completely different movie. Mm-hmm. You cross paths with them, you die, whether or not it's satisfying from a character standpoint. Also, I would like to amend my earlier statement about Wes Craven producing a shitty Dracula movie. In 1990, he was creating uh, Night Visions, the TV movie. Uh, but the year after that was The People Under the Stairs, 91. And the year before that, 89, Shocker. So, he, was doing yeah, right. he, had, he had really good years between Night Visions. Nin- 1990 should have been fucking Child's Play 2 for that guy. Yeah, Wes yeah. Craven, that's when he was coming back up. This was pre-Music of the Heart. Actually, so early not. early nineties was pretty good. We had New Nightmare in ninety four, um, Vampire in Brooklyn ninety five. That's a misfire. But then Scream in ninety six, and then Scream two ninety seven. Craven yeah. was pretty much an unstoppable freight train until the Scream sequels. Well, I mean, like eighty six was when... Deadly Friend. Uh, <laughs> oh, I forgot he did an episode of the Magical World of Disney in uh, eighty six. <laughs> There was, okay, this is fascinating, folks. Uh, we're going to ignore the movie for a minute and just go down a plunge <laughs> of IMDb. 1984 is A Nightmare on Elm Street. The next thing Wes Craven directed was a movie, 1985 TV movie, Chiller. Sure, why not? Then one episode of The Magical World of Disney a year later. Then Deadly Friend, 86. Then The Twilight Zone, the fucking 85 reboot. He did five episodes of that, and they did The Serpent and the Rainbow, Shocker, Night Visions, The People Under the Stairs, Nightmare Cafe, one episode, then New Nightmare, then Vampire in Brooklyn, Scream, Scream 2, Music of the Heart, Scream 3, Cursed, Red Eye. Things things got kind of shaky after Scream 2. Yeah, the 2000s are what, uh, where, where everything's kind of started getting hazy. Studios were not kind about of Cursed. Cursed. As long as we're yeah. here, how do you guys feel about Cursed? I would like to see cursed at some point like the, the, the original the movie craven filmed yeah 
I think that's where everybody is with that movie. It's like, oh, I fucking hate its guts, but I've never actually seen it, so I can't comment. Yeah. Right? This thing, like, you watch Kirsten, you're like, this is not a good movie. But in the back of your head, you go, it might have been. Like, there's something here to it that's just not presenting properly. It's a movie that's always on the verge of existing, but never quite makes it. Yeah. I never realized I, he did It just came out even recently. It's like, year. I think a producer going, oh, Graven's Cursed exists somewhere. I'm sure it does. Oh, boy. We would love to release it at some point, but we're not allowed to. Yeah, they would have done it closer to, like, right after he died. No one wants to admit we fucked up. So we're not going, though, they're not going to release it. So you're just going to get the weird... You're just going to get the weird reshot version that wasn't by Craven. I can forgive a lot of things as long as someone eventually puts goddamn Red Eye out on a Blu-ray. Yeah, that, that's I'll a goddamn by Red Eye. I actually enjoy Red Eye quite a bit. Red Eye's fucking awesome. Yeah, well, <laughs> Jack Ripner? Mmm. Flaw <laughs> on the hey. nose, but okay. Fucking Craven loved his corny shit. You like, <laughs> you, you like going for it. You've seen the entirety of The People Under the Stairs? I, that's true, and I do love that movie a whole lot. It's true. Also, just since you went down the IMDb thing, I I brought this up on my <laughs> Nightmare and Schlockscapes article on Shocker on boxofficepulp.com. Uh, my theory for the longest promotion. time. <laughs> my my long-running theory is because Craven fucking hated sh- um just being in the putrid vile mess of directing 80s TV for a while and he didn't really want to be doing it that the entire reason that TV is a villain in Shocker is just him hating TV. Oh, I totally believe that. It's uh, kind of like yeah. uh, Firewalk With Me opens with a goddamn TV being destroyed with a sledgehammer because David Lynch was pissed off about Twin Peaks dying. Oh, yeah. Like, that's, anytime a filmmaker shows a TV just getting fucked up, you know that guy had a bad experience directing episodes of something or other. Oh, also, fucking Chucky's face here freaks me the fuck out. Like, they do the oh, yeah. slow transformation like they did in the first film, where his features slowly change. And holy fuck, can you tell there's a bigger budget? Like, it weirds me out. <laughs> He's just what real Chucky? before he gets funky. Yeah, like, Chucky's face here freaks me out, because he is fucking... Ugh, like, he just looks like a like a little Brad Dorf. So, so I, I can't even say so cute. It's not cute. Uh, cute. She's out of the movie now. Grace Zabriskie is dead. Uh, but I, I just wanted to comment on anyone who's seen Twin Peaks The Return knows, God damn, we have not been using this woman to her full potential. Like, what a, what a shame. She can do just the most uncomfortable, terrifying stuff, even at the later stages of her career. And it's a shame we didn't get to see her flexing those muscles earlier on. Like, the, the scripts just didn't have enough for her to do. This movie is a little disappointing because she's the kind, nurturing person you kind of expect to last in the movie, and then she dies. Yeah, it turns out she's the perfect actress for David Lynch's aesthetic, and he just didn't realize it until the very end. Dear God, some of the stuff she did in Twin Peaks The Returns is just fucking chilling. Like, just, just, ugh, makes me squirm thinking of her performance there. It's so terrifyingly good. I would and love if there was a deleted... someone who won't even admit to liking Twin Peaks The Return. <laughs> I really <laughs> hope that there's a deleted scene here of her just screaming at a photograph of her daughter <laughs> while drinking vodka. <laughs> or screaming about turkey jerky. Who knows? The limitless possibilities. 
<laughs> I, I want to act out that supermarket scene one day, just verbatim. Don't. You'll, they'll call all sorts of cops on you. <laughs> uh, but going back to the film we're doing commentary for. What? Hey, so this is <laughs> Um, the reason this movie is at Universal has become one of my favorite dumbass decisions uh, in, like, recent horror, uh, relatively recent horror history. Yeah, this movie was dropped by United Artists because a company that then immediately lost interest in them felt really iffy about buying a studio that made horror movies. <laughs> so they just liquidated all their horror shit like oh almost overnight. Yeah. And it's jumped to Universal like two days before filming. Entirely because of Steven Spielberg. <laughs> like that yep. amuses the shit out of me. He was friends <laughs> with David Kirshner. <laughs> And Kirshner convinced Spielberg to, to once again go up to Sid Sheinberg and tell him, you've got to get this franchise. Like, we have a... Do we technically have a Child's Play franchise for the same reason we have Back to the Future? Yeah. <laughs> Which people, I love because that gives talk, so okay. much... That's such an added layer to Ready Player One now. <laughs> One people talk Sid, uh, Sid. People talk shit about Sid for being, you know, just like the big studio head and all that kind of shit. But you hear these kind of stories where people come to him being like, "Hey, I feel really passionate about this creative idea," and be like, "All right, do it." And then they ended up with a giant franchise. Like, yeah, he was a fucking old school movie mogul. Like he gave, like he, like he was a film mogul. Like not like the old, no, the new wave of TV execs coming in to run studios in the late 70s and early 80s. Like, it's an old school dude. It's like, hmm, I, I like how passionate you are. We'll buy your movie. <laughs> yeah, like, apparently Don Coscarelli, like, did that. Like, he went up to Sid one time, like, just bypassed all of the lower people, and Sid was just amused that, like, a, a fucking teenager was talking to him. So he's like, yeah, sure, we can do it this way. That's the, that's the thing a lot that I think is lost on a lot of people. Like, you hear so many horror stories about those kind of people, and I'm sure... Sid's, I'm, I'm sure, sure personally. Yeah, I'm sure uh, personally, like, he ate children or something. But something horrifying. I, yeah, I don't want to defend the man as a saint. I'm just saying, like, there is a multifaceted history to a lot of these studio moguls that have been kind of forgotten by a new generation of fans. They're fascinating stories. Look back on the history of, like, MGM or Fox or fucking any. Go back to RKO and just read about how all that shit came together. And yeah. Jesus, they're characters that were made for movies themselves. Oh, yeah. Same, it's like watching a lot of Hail Caesar. Like, oh, my God. No, that's probably closer to truth than you would ever expect. Oh, that's what I love about researching old comic books. Like, pretty much the any version of the entertainment industry in the 40s was just filled with showbiz dudes. <laughs> but uh, the point I was uh, making was, yeah, failing upwards is kind of a more of a modern Hollywood concept that's popped up in our lifetimes. Back in the day, if you were the head of a movie studio for a really long time, it was because you did things right. Yeah. Did you knew the right chances or because to you were like the brother of someone important and the studio's like, fuck, we gotta, we gotta have one of them guys. Yeah. It's like, like you can, like one of my favorite like examples of that is Joel Silver. 
Like, you can talk shit about Joel Silver all day long. Rightfully so, but... And he'll just laugh at the number of, like, fucking awards sitting on his mantle. It's like, yeah, Joel Silver was also the guy to say, yeah, let's make Tales from the Crypt. Silver produced a shit ton of stuff people love. Like, that honestly... A lot of niche stuff that was just gut checks. Yeah. Like, just, I, this feels good. Why not? Let's gamble some money on this. Yeah, again, Silver's not one of those guys where I want to be like, look, what an angel. But I, I do want to say, yeah, he's responsible for things you love. So you, you can't make fun of everything he ever did. Yeah, more good than bad. He gave us a fucking national treasure. No, like, some... literally a national treasure. I'm going to ignore literally. the second one. <laughs> As somebody once said about Mike Lazo, like, you can ha- you can be mad at Mike Lazo for canceling your favorite Adult Swim show, but... It wouldn't have been picked up by anybody else in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe we're already at the factory. This is I know. I know. This, is, this is this is a Jonah Hex length film. <laughs> and <laughs> I love, like, I love this factory. I love, like, this is a like. I was kind of getting like, on off a little bit. Explain to me how the fuck for... they made a labyrinth of these Chucky dolls. I know why. the fucking <laughs> labyrinth of boxes. The movie was just actually supposed to take place during Christmas, which is why. Um, there's a motherfucker with a tote motor just like, how the fuck do I get all these boxes out of here? <laughs> I would hate to fucking work here. That would be a nightmare. Right? Like, God, you just starve to death. Which pallets am I supposed to take? Oh, Jesus. Wait, hand me a fucking trail of breadcrumbs. How do I get this? Do I do and, the Chucky and honestly, over here? The Chucky over here. And honestly, this is incredible to me. Why, why is Judd um, in this movie now? <laughs> we don't, um, we don't honestly, go down this... that Chucky path. Um, and honestly, this is like all great to me, like going through that labyrinth of Chucky faces, going through this, like this whole tunnel sequence here and then into the factory with no people in it, (laughs) except one dude. Um, yeah. And then into the factory. That was refilmed as the murder just to spice the film up. Right. Oh yeah. It had to have been like, cause it makes it, it, it completely like, it shouldn't even be there. There Um, No way that part of the original script they finished it and they're like shit this movie's like an hour 15 we gotta kill somebody to spice this up and pad the length yeah but i love how this is like an entrance into some kind of child hell where <laughs> yeah. like the factory i'm obsessed with the design of the factory like all of this from the labyrinth into this tunnel it's like well, there's a slide. lot of weird this, symbolism this going on classic Chuck E. cheese slide like the rolling yeah. tubes now that you mention it, yeah, that's for sure, like a, a kid thing. And the factory itself is like if you took Willy Wonka's factory <laughs> and then had, like, Dante design it. Well, like, the Willy Wonka factory is already designed to give you nightmares and murder children. This is just, so the this is just over the top. Because yeah, it's like it's... all this garish colors, but it's all like twisty and there's just pipes everywhere. And it's like, has a, like, look at this. It's, it's designed to look like a giant playset. It's fascinating. But... This is a building that, like the fucking size of the Budweiser Brewery, <sighs> just making the same goddamn doll. Like you no said, one it... in it. This is, this is a terror story for today. Like, this is the automation that's going to take your job and then eventually it's going to make these killer dolls. That was on my mind. Were you watching this? Like, oh, hello, Amazon in five years. Really? Ugh. Hello, automation. But, You're now unemployed. Congrats. But yeah, you make a really good point. Like, it essentially looks like a McDonald's play place from the 90s. Yeah. 
And just all this, like, I can't imagine any factory where they don't have a breakdown, like, every five goddamn minutes and they need a human being to make sure, like, the weird naked dolls are being assembled correctly. (laughs) Naked Chucky. Or, like, any of this stuff, like, as soon as someone steps into one of the conveyor belts and something doesn't fire the exact second it should, it should just break. But in this one, nope. It'll just murder you and keep moving. (laughs) Oh, factories are the evilest setting in all of old fiction. This is the Mangler, but done well. Yeah, like the, the, I never really thought about that, but yeah, factories became a quicksand from like <laughs> the eighties to the late nineties. Very much so. And I, I there's just say, so like, many I mean, like once factories went automated, they were a a way for things to look really expensive if you film like in an actual factory, and it just <laughs> looked dangerous because there's so much shit moving around. Very true. Uh, well, even if you go back to fucking Charlie Chaplin, look at modern times. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Automation scares the shit out of people. Yeah. Also, knife hand Chucky is the greatest thing. Oh, yeah. There's not enough hand. knife hand Chucky. It bothers the hell out of me. I spent a couple years working in like a machine shop and like those things are terrifying. Like some of this stuff, uh, uh, the lathes that I used to work on, like I, I got the warning all the time, like, hey, if, you, if you're wearing headphones, tuck them. you got to have the cables going underneath your shirt. Don't have those drip forward because if they get caught in the machine lathe, it'll just pull you into the lathe. Like the machine does not give a fuck about your soft human body. <laughs> it'll, it'll just yank clumps of hair out. It'll scalp you. It'll break thumbs. It doesn't give a shit about you. Oh, like, there's, no, there's nothing like seeing a device at work that could kill you if you tripped and fell into it. Like not into its mouth or anything. Just if you call hit the metal, you would become Mr. Glass and just collapse. Uh, well, my dad worked at a paper mill for years, and people died there. Like, <laughs> they're just dead. Like, you know a couple of people in town who had family members who died working at the mill, and then you knew they were going to work at the mill in a few years, and you just weren't allowed to say anything to them about the mill because it brought up bad memories. Like, Your a guy got basically... For like, a while. You know, like a roll, a two-ton roll of paper would fall down and basically, like, roll into a guy and smash him like a fucking steamroller, or... Somebody would trip and fall and go into the goddamn pulpers and get turned into paper pulp. <laughs> like, people die in modern-day factories all the time. Surprisingly, not, like, every day, but it happens. It's not factories just people's battery. Bladders exploding. Yeah, factories also, are kind of spooky. Also, is this the mom's boss from the first movie? <laughs> like, this is twin brother. <laughs> Uh, one thing that made a lot of sense for me uh, whenever I found it out was that this finale was the original finale for Blood Buddy, which yeah, makes really. a lot of things that are random about this finale, and I guess the beginning as well, like, click into place. Like, oh, this was more of the brands being shoved down your face satirical stuff from the original <laughs> Mancini sh- script. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that the death we just saw was such a child's nightmare. Because in, in the real world, just imagine every fucking job you've ever had. Like, there's a dedicated person for each one of these tasks. Like, there's going to be one guy who watches the monitors, and he'll call another guy to go fix the machine. You don't have one guy that does it all. What a cushy job that is, though. Right? Well, like, I'm if that saying, actually like, existed. Oh, you saw a mistake? Go fix it, Ted. You're the one man who manages his entire goddamn factory all day long. Oh, my dream is to be the one dude, uh, right from that Simpsons episode, who just like hits the machine with a. (laughs) Oh, oh, mother of tears! I hate this thing. I hate it. It it disgusts me. 
It, it's weird how Chucky's shtick became being fucked up after three, <laughs> but they never really dedicated to like, no, let's really fuck Chucky up with every passing movie till he has like four hands and he's half melted. It was like, yeah, we'll we'll just put some staples on his face. There's just a green mist coming out of the back of his head at all times. <laughs> oh my god, I think I was right. Earlier I mentioned that there was like a 10 minute fake out finale. It's an hour 15 into the movie. This movie ends in like 10 minutes. <laughs> Spoilers for people watching the movie right now. This is not how Chucky dies. <laughs> there's not like 10 minutes of credits right here. Like there's a whole other action beat after this. Oh god, could you imagine a Chucky sequel where he's one of the Sid toys from Toy Story? <laughs> Like, he's just that hand that drags itself with the frog attached. That would be right. amazing. This is one of my earlier notes, and I feel like we... I wrote it, I might as well say it. There really is, like, a ship of Theseus thing going on with Chucky, right? A little bit. Like, how much of him can you replace and have it still be Chucky? Chuck- at what point is the soul not allowed to come back into this Chucky doll? Chucky just seems to have the ability to be Chucky. When the plot calls for it, yeah. He's like the uh, Abraham Lincoln ghost from Venture Brothers who can only possess, like, pennies and $5 bills. <laughs> I feel like Chucky can just be can just be a Chucky doll. God, uh, that blob on the conveyor belt actually makes me feel nauseous. It's pretty gross. It doesn't happen to me in a lot of movies. Like, I don't mind people being murdered with machetes and cut in half or whatever else or melting from acid. The RoboCop death where the guy just gets splattered by the car, that's funny. This is a fucking disgusting travesty. It's the it's the mix of gore and plastic. I don't yeah, I don't like it. It's really fucking unnatural. And you can smell it, can't you? You, you can, can smell, smell it through it. the movie. That's really it. This is like the one movie designed for smell vision that I would never watch. Like I I don't I think off mic we've talked about the smelly toys we yeah. had as children and for virus. That one Oh yes, yes, oh, yeah. yeah. This you can tell this factory smells like a 1999 McFarlane toy. <laughs> oh Christ, Christ! Oh, San Preservas. Yeah, there, there is no way I'd want to work there. Also, oh, fuck. Good. Now just, we're introducing acid. Yes. Also, fuck. Just Chucky, like with a knife hand and no legs, threatening to cut a legs off of a child <laughs> as he drags yeah. himself across the floor. So right. there, awesome. was, there was a film school shot just a second ago. We saw Andy from a low angle. Think about that. This is a child. This is like a fucking four foot tall kid at best. And with the low camera angle, he gets to seem like he's the god in this moment as he destroys the doll with acid. Like well, that's, that's, that's I, cinematography 101. Like, hey, low angle makes people seem big and powerful. Oh, yeah. There's it works something with, with the... this goddamn kid with a Muppet Bowl cut. <laughs> I wanted to bring that up earlier, actually. Like, I, 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 give, I gave Alafia some shit for kind of uh, struggling with some tonal stuff mm-hmm. um, and finesse, um, mostly with things involving Chucky. But um, his use of angles um, and lenses to kind of build to actually that moment where he shoots Andy at a low angle, which is he usually shoots low angles from Andy or sometimes uh, Chucky is more from um, straight on while yeah. Andy is usually his POV f- is him looking up and the angles going up and then adults are, are down. Also, fuck, I love this puppet um, are, are looking <laughs> down to, to really almost demonize Andy to, to make the, make the adults seem almost uh, aggressive 
in the in, yeah they're, in their manner towards Andy. Yeah, and I love the build up to then Andy getting that shot. Oh God, they're doing the Cabbage Patch Kid shot. <laughs> Or the big trouble in Little China. Garbage pail kid. Garbage pail kid. Or <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It's totally big trouble in Little China. Yep. God, oh, Chucky uh... always dies a hundred times, and I love it. But, and, and that's the thing. Like it, I feel like Holland pulled off the never-ending deaths thing a lot better than it's pulled off here. Yeah. Like, it was kind here of a kind finesse of thing like... where it's not silly. And it's kind of right. horrifying and surprising, and here it's mostly silly. Right here, it's an hour twenty. We had just five minutes of Chucky dying. God damn, <laughs> it felt like twenty. Like this motherfucker just died and died and died. It fe- in the original film, it felt like an escalation, and this it kind of feels like they just brainstormed like five ways for Chucky to die and just put threw them all in. I, I, I'm telling you guys, this movie is so short. It must have been one of those things where like we have to pad this out. We got to keep going. We got to add something new. Or you just not cut it down to what it is here after watching the goddamn extended cut. Speaking of. Uh, um, Mike, hit us with some facts. So um, originally they walk out. A lot of that dialogue's um, originally there, but they're kind of standing in the entrance. And there's kind of like a crappy, like cheesy exchange. You understand why it's cut out. And then they walk off. Then it cuts back into the factory. Um, Kind of pulling, kind of doing like this big tracking shot over machinery and stuff um kind of above and you like pull pushing in on Chucky's like blown up plasticky melted corpse and shit and then going mm-hmm. up and uh, and above to the big melted plastic tank right there and a piece of his like half of his face which was blown <laughs> up into the air in the explosion is sitting on top like it blew up into the melted plastic and then dun, and it dun, slowly dun. starts to melt in and disappear amidst all the plastic and then it's you see a bunch of machinery um bringing down a mold of a new chucky head and then molding it to get like the like the mold smashes together with a big clank and it pushes apart and it's a new chucky head molded and it's fucking awesome. It goes a little bit too far because then the it gives a uh, an evil smile, and then the credits roll. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of awesome in how like like over the top cheesy the smile is. But honestly, everything leading up to that's fucking great, and I really wish they left that in because you can kind of start part three with a version of that. But this honestly makes the beginning of three clearer with it there, and it's just a nice note uh for it to end on it's i don't know there's something about like chucky's face melting into all that plastic <laughs> and then remolding is a really cool concept plus it's, it's, it it reminds me of the way they treated freddy like by about the halfway point of the yeah. elm street films where they're just like no freddy's not dead <laughs> you idiot like i think it's dream isn't it dream child that's just yeah i locked him in a room he's about to to, he's about to run out and kill everyone again. Just walk out of <laughs> just walk out of the movie now. <laughs> like I, like, I literally locked that? him up for the time it will take for them to shoot another movie. So we don't have to explain this. Really, every every nightmare before that even ended with Freddy just murdering the the hero at the end. Like, nah, he's not dead. In fact, everyone you love just died. End of movie. Yeah. 
like the closer we came is what his his bones being buried inside of that graveyard. Yeah, just Dream Warriors. Yep, Dream Which... Warriors had kind of like went for a definitive end, and then after that, it's like, eh, whatever. All right, that most it probably is. I haven't seen all the movies. I can't say for sure, but probably is the funniest way to bring character back. The next film where a dog just pisses on his corpse and that's enough to, <laughs> to, to great to story of how that came about though. Just the ultimate Time for fuck a, it. It sounds like it would be, uh, it also sounds like a story for a different podcast episode. True, 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 true. All right, folks, we just hit the end of the credits. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been child's play two. Uh, you guessed it. We're, we're, we're coming back for child's play three. Who knows? Maybe more in the future. There's a lot of Child's Play movies. Thank you for joining us again. If you want to listen to more of us, you can find us on Box Office Pulp on pretty much eh, all the major social medias. We have a Tumblr account that's not active. Tumblr will probably be dead in two weeks anyway. <laughs> Why are you putting the Tumblr account we haven't used in three I'm years? Doing, I'm doing them in order. The Tumblr's at the bottom because we don't use it much. And then we have a Facebook page. Find us at Box Office Pulp. Like that shit. And then we're on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. You can also find more of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher. Just look for Box Office Pulp. You'll find us. We even have another commentary for Child's Play, Child's Play 1. You'll love that. If you love this, you'll love that. And if you already heard Child's Play 1 and then you listen to this one and we're all caught up to current, go go listen to 1 again. That was a good episode, right? No, no, no. I'm still hung up on this. So you're assuming the Box Office Pulp Tumblr is even still there. I I'm sure. Right I'm sure now. it was. I'm sure it was flagged as pornographic. Uh, all right, that's a fair comment. I'm. I'm going to check this now. I got uh, uh, Tumblr up. Let's see if I can switch. Uh, um, we were almost out. We were. I was doing good, and you guys fucked me over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. Don't. Do, hey, hey, hey! Do not. Do not drag me into this. No. Okay. The the one thing I will say is I just switched to the box office pulp account, and the, our last post. Which was uh, it doesn't have a timestamp on it. Our last post was flagged for possibly it being adult content. It was a reblog of the website Pixelry that did retro posters of Mad Max and Big Trouble in Little China and Taxi Driver with pinup girls. It said that could be adult content. There's pinup girls on these old school posters. It's probably porn. We have to flag this and get rid of it. Mind you, the post underneath that was a reblog from the Evil Dead trilogy just showing uh, the reboot where a character is sawing her arm off with a kitchen knife. And that was not flagged. That's perfectly fine. I feel like the box office pulp tumbler is a microcosm for America. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, did you know we had 89 followers still on our box office pulp tumbler? All those people are dead. Probably. All of them. Uh, but we had 1,600 posts. Good for us. Also, uh, remember to visit us at boxofficepulp.com. And uh, please rate us and subscribe on whatever your favorite uh, podcast li listening method is. It's a big help, um, especially if you can rate us. And, uh, you know, yell at us also if you if you feel like it, because it's understandable. We, we yell at us, too. Yeah, well, I think it's everything. Yeah, got really self-defeatist there at the end. Yeah, well, that's life. Anyways, folks, that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater.
So don't you want to see a version of Child's Play 2 where the foster family is the foster family from Shazam? And it's just really disturbing and sad. Oh, that'd be so sad. Those people are so nice. I actually meant to bring that up. I find that Shazam is the actual family-friendly, straightforward version of Child's Play 2. I actually think they... I, I'm not just saying that because I did actually watch them back-to-back, but <laughs> they do play back-to-back. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Right? Yeah, it's really fucking weird. Which makes Shazam Chucky in that situation, which is disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> About as scary. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.